Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Joe Watson tells us about Britain's first two women members of Parliament. Constance Markovich and Nancy Astor both came from wealthy families. Both acquired titles, but they were very, very different. Today, it's the story of Britain's first two women MPs. Now, both came from wealthy families, they were very different sorts. Both acquired titles, were excellent speakers, and neither were shrinking violets. They were to figure in the politics of the period for different reasons, yet only one took their seat in the House of Commons. The two women were Constance Markovich and Nancy Astor. At the start of the 20th century, in their guise as two upper-class Edwardian ladies, but that relaxed period was about to come to an end as the political and social temperature rose markedly. Constance Gore Booth was born in London in 1868, the daughter of an Arctic explorer and adventurer, Sir Henry Gore Booth. He was an Anglo-Irish landlord, part of what was called the Protestant Ascendancy, who owned most of the farmland in Ireland. Her father had shown decidedly liberal tendencies with regard to the management of his estate. During the Irish famine of 1879-80, Sir Henry provided free food for the tenants on his estate at Lissadell House, in County Sligo in the northwest of Ireland. He also held back from taking the rents. His genuine concern for the poor was to be followed by his daughters, Constance, and her younger sister, Eva. Now, Constance spent much of her youth in what one writer called the wilderness of Ireland, but grew into a very beautiful young woman who attracted the attention of many, including one of their neighbours, the writer W.B. Yeats. He was such a frequent visitor that he seemed to have stayed at Lissadale House almost permanently for a couple of years. Yates respected and admired the girl who was on her way to becoming known as the best horsewoman in all of Ireland, unmatched, it was said, at riding to hounds. Constance was, according to Yates, often in trouble around the estate for some tomboyish feat or reckless riding. Yates even wrote a poem in memory of the two sisters in which he described them as two girls in silk kimono, both beautiful, one a gazelle, the gazelle being Constance. I think we've got a pretty good idea of his feelings towards her. In 1887, the sisters were presented at court. Constance, at 19, was described by some in England as the new Irish beauty. Now, moving in the very wealthy aristocratic circle, the sisters were seemingly destined to live a life with the comforts and privileges of the landed class, but that was not the case for either. Constance declined to accept the obvious path and eventually persuaded her father to let her train as a painter and in 1892 went to study at the Slade School in London. Now, it was at about this time that she became politically active and joined the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. This didn't go down well with her parents, but undeterred, Constance became the president of a suffrage committee and made a rousing speech in Dumcliffe 
noting that the number of women who'd signed petitions had been dramatically increasing over the recent years. One man heckled, if my wife went to vote, she might never come back. She must think very little of you then, Constance retorted to a crowd cheering in delight. She then moved to Paris and enrolled at the prestigious Académie Julienne, where she continued to paint. She claimed she was married to art and wore a ring to show it. She smoked cigarettes, made a wide range of friends, and earned the nickname Velo for riding her bike to the studio each day. When a Parisian girl teached her about her funny-sounding English, Constance marched her to the sink and held her head under running water. So she's laid down a marker already as something of a firebrand. But it was here, in Paris, that she met her future husband, Kazimierz Markovich, an artist from a reputedly wealthy Polish family from Ukraine. Now, Markovich was known in Paris as Count Markovich, but when Constance's family inquired as to the validity of the title, they were informed, uh, through a member of the Russian secret police, that he'd taken the title without right, and there'd never been a Count Markovich in Poland. The Department of Genealogy in St. Petersburg disagreed and said that he was entitled to claim to be a member of the nobility. Now, Markovich was married, though separated, but when they met, but his wife died in 1899, and he and Galbooth married in London in September 1900. <laughs> Just over a year later, she gave birth to their daughter, Maeve, at Lissadell. Constance was to be a largely absentee parent, and the child was brought up in the main by her grandmother. Constance and Casimir returned to their endeavours in Dublin, where they were part of an artistic set, with Constance featuring as actress as well as painter. Here they mixed with a rising tide of Irish cultural and political nationalism. In 1906, her life took a dramatic turn. On a painting trip to the country, she rented a holiday cottage and found in it old copies of the revolutionary publications The Peasant and Sinn Féin. Reading them inspired Constance to embrace the Irish Republican cause and workers' rights. Soaking in the slime and ooze of the bogland, she wrote, you find the dispossessed people of the old Gaelic race in their miserable cabins. She joined Sinn Féin and the Daughters of Ireland, a nationalist women's movement, but not everyone was convinced of her sincerity. It wasn't helped by appearing at a meeting dressed in a blue velvet gown with diamond accessories, having come from a posh do at Dublin Castle with her aristocratic mates. The campaign for women's rights was to be taken to a parliamentary by-election in Manchester. Now, in 1906, new licensing laws were being drawn up by the Liberal government. This was to try and legislate against the social problems rampant through drunkenness. Now, one clause in the proposed bill would give local magistrates the right to ban barmaids. Now, the idea being it would improve the behaviour of the men who squandered their income on booze and had been lured by the sight of attractive young women selling the stuff. Now, others argued it would prevent these young women being exploited since their lives often ended in drunkenness, immorality, misery and frequently suicide. Barmaids had already been banned in Glasgow and the Temperance Brigade were very keen on expanding the idea. Now, Constance's sister Eva was by now a trade union activist and had set up the Barmaids Political Defence League. Over the coming months, the furore regarding the licensing bill would reach an all-time high after a dramatic cabinet reshuffle. Ill health led to the resignation of the Prime Minister Campbell Bannerman in 1908, and Henry Asquith took over the role, with Winston Churchill appointed as President of the Board of Trade. 
Now, under the law of the day, a newly appointed cabinet minister had to resign his seat and stand for re-election. So on his appointment, Churchill was forced to stand in a by-election in Manchester North West. Now, it was common practice that a newly appointed cabinet minister would be returned unopposed. <laughs> this wasn't to be the case, in part because he'd switched from the Tory to the Liberal Party. But even so, he didn't appear to be in much danger, as he'd had a substantial majority at the general election two years before. But Churchill had become a central figure in the barmaid issue, as he hadn't supported women's suffrage, and so was an obvious target. Now, ironically, Churchill was in favour of home rule, but Constance and Eva set aside those issues and with their followers supported the Conservative candidate, who, to be honest, would turn out later to be a great disappointment. Eva organised a coach and horses and to be driven round Manchester, with Markovic holding the reins. Now, when the coach stopped, they took to the roof of the carriage and made rousing speeches. Markovic was heckled by a man in the crowd with the inevitable male query, Can you cook a dinner? Certainly, she replied, cracking her whip. Can you drive a coach and four? Well, the following day, Ava Gore Booth arranged a mass meeting in the coal exchange in support of the barmaids. This time, Markovic took the stand, announcing, I've come over from Ireland to help because I am a woman. I'm not a conservative. I'm a home ruler. But I've come over here to ask everyone to vote for Mr Johnson Hicks, the Tory candidate. Now, he, incidentally, was to become Home Secretary during the general strike. Now, the reason he got their support was, according to Constance, the only one who takes a straight and decent view of the barmaid's question. The result was Churchill lost, though he did find a seat in Dundee a few months later. Now, the lobbying against the bill included a demonstration in Trafalgar Square, which attracted about oh, 2,000 people, and both women addressed the crowds from the plinth of Nelson's column. In a remark that still resonates today, Constance said, We are told the bar is a bad place for women. So it is. But the Thames Embankment at night is far worse. The bill was eventually defeated with Conservative MP Wilfred Ashley questioning whether a body of men elected entirely by men had any moral right to prohibit the employment of women in a certain trade purely on sentimental grounds. Now, by now, Constance was being recognised as a political animal. The following year, in 1909, Constance was back in fine form rallying women at the Dublin Literary Society. The first step on the road to freedom is to realise ourselves as Irish women, not as Irish or merely as women, but as Irish women, doubly enslaved and with a double battle to fight. Now, as the nationalist cause gained momentum, Constance co-founded the Warriors of Ireland, Fianna Éireann, which trained teenagers in the use of firearms. Now, this move was apparently set up in a response to the founding of the Boy Scouts, which at that time had definite military connotations. She even rented a house and ran summer camps for these recruits. Now, a new phase in her life began in 1911, when she spoke at a rally by the Irish Republican Brotherhood, opposed to King George V's visit to Ireland. The royal tour, which came a few months after the coronation, had been deemed a great success, but Constance experienced her first arrest after she threw stones at the likeness of the king and queen and tried to burn a giant Union flag on one of the city buildings. Now, when Markovich and other Irish suffragists realised that John Redmond's Irish party in the British Parliament intended to exclude women from the vote if they achieved their goal of home rule, these women went into open opposition. They began to imitate the violent demonstrations of their English sisters, smashing windows at public buildings and hunger striking in prison. 
Moderate Irish nationalists, supporters of Redmond, detested the suffragists for threatening their movement in this way. Two years later, during a strike in a lockout in Dublin in 1913, Constance took out loans and sold her jewellery to feed the poor and started a soup kitchen for children. Around the same time, she joined the Irish Citizen Army, led by James Connolly, the socialist Irish Republican leader. In 1913, her husband left Ireland to live in Ukraine, a little put off by her activism. He fought for the Tsarist army in the First World War, was a correspondent for several British magazines post-war, and although they were separated, they remained in contact for the rest of her life. Now, even now, her fight for women's rights wasn't being taken seriously. Vanity Fair wrote in 1914, In the far-off regions of County Sligo, amongst the wives and daughters of the farmers and fishermen, the pretty daughters of Sir Henry Gore Booth are creating a little excitement, not to say amusement, by their efforts for the emancipation of their sex. The sisters make a pretty picture on the platform, but however it amuses them and others, I doubt if the tyrant has much to fear from their little arrows. <laughs> pretty cringeworthy stuff. Now, Constance was keen to encourage other women to join the cause of freeing Ireland. Her advice was to dress suitably in short skirts and strong boots, leave your jewels in the bank and buy a revolver. <laughs> well, Sinn Féin operated an equals opportunity policy and for a few years she'd been writing a gardening column for a women's nationalist paper and she regularly used anti-English analogies in her advice. Slugs, but let us not be daunted. A good nationalist should look upon the slugs in the garden in much the same way as she looks on the English in Ireland. <laughs> should not Ireland take a lesson from the snowdrop and gather her forces together for the supreme effort to gain light? The whole forces of the earth are ranged against the snowdrop, the whole of the British Empire against Ireland. And if our tiny snowdrop can prevail, surely the task is not too much for the great for Ireland. Now the Countess, a lieutenant in the Citizen Army, was one of the most enthusiastic members. She designed their uniforms, their flag and their banner, and she wrote its theme song. When World War I broke out, Connolly enlisted her in the Irish Neutrality League. Their concern was that Irishmen were volunteering to fight for the Empire, which in their eyes was for those people that had enslaved them and they saw the increasing danger that the British government would at any time impose conscription. During a rally in Dublin, Connolly and Markovich held aloft a giant banner which stated their case. We serve neither King nor Kaiser, but Ireland. Now the photograph made international headlines signalling worldwide that there was to be a growing movement for Irish independence. They saw the British involvement in the war as an opportunity to promote their cause. The reference to the Kaiser was that the Germans had started to supply some of the rebel groups with guns in the hope it would cause the British to throw their resources at keeping peace in Ireland. Her home, Surrey House, was always open to artists, poets and playwrights and became in the lead-up to the Easter Rising a meeting place for Republicans and rebels to hold their strategy sessions and plan their manoeuvres <coughs> as she took very careful notes. The house, incidentally, was in a firm unionist suburb and her neighbours were not amused. On the morning of Easter Monday 1916, several groups of Irish rebels, which included around 200 women, were on the march with the main force taking over the post office in Dublin and raising the tricolour. I'm not going to go into details, it's rather complicated, but not all the Republican groups joined in 
and one main group didn't support the violent intentions of the others. Markovic, for her part, took a column of the citizen army to St Stephen's Green, where she was second in command, and helped the Fiena boys build trenches around the Green. Madame, as she preferred to be called, was ready for war. She wore her dark green uniform, a slouch hat, and carried a pistol and a rifle. A cartridge belt hung round her neck. She fired the first round at the green, and word soon spread of her fearlessness. Sniper fire made the position at the green impossible, forcing the troops to retreat to the Royal College of Surgeons. Once there, she shot the lock off the door and resumed the fight. After six days, the call came to surrender. Constance kissed her revolver goodbye. I'm ready, she said. Now, the British Army had responded to the revolt with an artillery bombardment. Around 450 were killed, mostly civilians, and more than 2,000 injured which, as you can imagine, caused long-lasting unrest and exacerbated when some of the ringleaders were executed. Some reports suggested Constance had shot and killed a policewoman and a policeman. A witness at her trial testified so, but Constance, who was very vague on the subject, did admit hitting someone, but there was no conclusive evidence she'd killed him. Now, of the 80 women arrested, she was the only one to face trial, and she was in fine form. I went out to fight for Ireland's freedom, and it does not matter what happens to me. At least Ireland was free for a week. She was charged with causing disaffection among the civilian population of His Majesty. Convicted, she was sentenced to death, but the sentence was commuted to life in prison with hard labour because she was a woman. She said to have replied, I do wish your lot had the decency to shoot me. And with the government fearing she might attract a cult following, following this, she was moved to Aylesbury. Here she was denied the status of a political prisoner. She was jailed with thieves, prostitutes and common criminals. She was assigned to scrub the kitchen floors, a task made more odious by wardens throwing dirt over the floors she'd just cleaned. Refusing to be defeated, she took the threads from the cleaning rags and proceeded to create a secret pincushion embroidered with Easter week, 1916. Her weight plummeted from 11 stone to 7.5 stone, but she kept writing cheerfully on unauthorised letters to Eva on toilet paper. Now, Eva Gorbooth, as we've already seen, was a highly skilled activist. She saw her sister's failing health, lobbied for more humane treatment of prisoners, and in 1917 helped to get her sister included in an amnesty for participants in the Easter Rising. It's thought, when the US entered the war, the release of the prisoners was a sop to influential Irish-Americans. Now Kilkenny and Sligo welcomed Constance home with foghorns, and in Dublin she was practically carried by a welcoming crowd to Liberty Hall, where she declared herself back in politics. Sinn Féin's new leader, Eamon de Valera, saw that Constance was elected to the 24-member Executive Council. Incidentally, de Valera, who'd fought in the Easter Rising, was born in the US, and although he'd come to Ireland when only two, he was regarded as an American citizen, so the government had wanted to avoid any problems with the US by not executing him at such a delicate time. In 1918, Constance was back in jail after the British arrested Sinn Féin leaders for working against the conscription of troops for the war effort. She was imprisoned with several other women in Holloway, but did have certain freedoms. She was allowed to paint with watercolours as oils affected the health of one of her fellow inmates. She also reputedly bought several fur coats to help keep them warm. 
Four days after the armistice was signed, David Lloyd George called a general election, and Sinn Féin were determined to make an impact at the polls. The election in December was the first to take place after the representation of the People Act in 1917. This extended the franchise to all men over 21 and to some women. Before this, there was been no law expressly forbidding women standing for Parliament, but they were excluded by convention, so they had to pass a bill to confirm their eligibility. Sinn Féin laid down an important resolution that no candidate should stand other than a man who took part in the fight for Easter week. Obviously, women were also granted that exemption. In the end, 17 women stood, but only one succeeded, and she was the one in Holloway Prison. Sinn Féin was fond of picking prisoners as candidates, and it proved a highly successful strategy. Of the 69 candidates elected in the 1918 poll, no fewer than 34 were in jail. In an election message, Constance wrote, I stand for the Irish Republic. There are many roads to freedom. Today we may hope that our road will be a peaceful and bloodless one. I need hardly assure you that it will be an honourable one. Markovic was obviously well known in Ireland and her work amongst the poor in Dublin meant that she was a virtual shoe-in at Dublin St Patrick. She won the seat with a 65% of the vote and a majority of more than 4,000. She was one of 73 seats to go their way. And incidentally, there were three times as many eligible voters in 1918 in Ireland than in 1910. Now, when she was elected, she received the usual letter inviting her to take her seat. It was addressed, Dear Sir. <laughs> However, she'd already decided to refuse to take her seat in accordance with Sinn Féin's policy, which is still in operation today. After all, she was imprisoned by the foreign enemy. Now, on her release in March 1919, she did apparently visit the House of Commons to see her name on a coat peg in the members' cloakroom. Once more, her Irish supporters were out in force when she got home. She was then named Minister for Labour in the first Doyle, the first woman cabinet minister in Europe, and the only one in Ireland until 1979. Arrested again in June for making a seditious speech, she was sentenced to four months' hard labour in Cork, the third time she'd been incarcerated in four years. After her release, Markovich continued to defy British authorities. Such political activity became more dangerous and difficult after the outbreak of the Anglo-Irish War in early 1919, and Markovich spent much of her time on the run, in constant danger of arrest. In a letter to her sister, she describes the Norius Black and Tans as a force determined to exterminate us. Now, the Black and Tans were made up of ex-army and police officers, recruited in Britain and dressed partly in khaki and partly in black, so hence their nickname. She was arrested again in September 1920 and sentenced to two years' hard labour. Released in July 1921 in the wake of a truce agreed between the British government and Irish Republicans, she returned to her ministry, but any hope of political stability was dashed by the split in the Republican ranks over the Anglish-Irish Treaty of 1921. Dressed in her uniform, Markovich addressed the Doyle in a characteristically theatrical fashion, condemning the treaty, which she saw as a dreadful compromise, as Ireland was offered dominion rather than full independent status. What was known as the Irish Free State was set up with the Northern Ireland government, who separated at once, though the boundaries weren't agreed immediately. She then went on a fundraising tour to the US in 1922. 
Many came out to see her. Several more arrests, including another period on hunger strike, followed. Disillusionment with Sinn Féin meant by the time she changed sides and was elected as an MP for Fianna Foyle in June 27, she was too <coughs> ill to take her seat. A gaunt appearance shot many who knew her. Following month, suffering possibly with tuberculosis and peritonitis after an appendix operation, she was admitted to a public ward in a Dublin hospital, having given away her possessions. Casimir arrived with roses for a deathbed visit that Constance would describe as the happiest day of her life. She'd been long estranged from her daughter and there would be no reunion before Constance died, aged 59, on July the 15th. She was refused a state funeral, but thousands lined the streets to see the procession and Di Valera gave the funeral oration. She was buried in Glasnevin Cemetery and is commemorated by several statues. To mark the centenary in 2018 of women getting the vote and her election, the House of Commons was presented with a copy of her portrait by the Irish Parliament. It currently hangs in a corridor near the Government Whip's office, just off Central Lobby, as they confirmed to me a couple of weeks ago. So there you are, Constance Markovich. So, if Markovich had been a high-profile political activist for many years before her election, Nancy Witcher Longhorn came into the political arena indirectly and was aided by a family bereavement. Physically diminutive, she was larger than life in other respects. She was born at Langhorn House in Dalvin, Virginia, the eight of 11 children. Her father was a railroad millionaire, Chiswell Dabney Langhorn. Now, Chile, as he was known, was a veteran of the Civil War, which had brought destruction to large swathes of the South. Combined with the abolition of slavery, it meant that when he returned to the family plantation, its fortunes were on the slide. The result was the family lived in near poverty for several years before she was born. It was so bad that her mother, also called Nancy, had to sell her engagement ring to buy a sewing machine to repair her husband's trousers. Now, Chile was renowned for his wit and charm, though had a temper on him when drunk. Her mother was known for her sense of humour, which she probably needed. Now, Nancy's early years in straitened circumstances gave her an insight into that side of life, and it stood her in good stead years later. After her birth, her father gained a job as a tobacco auctioneer, but his rise to riches came in 1874, when he won a construction contract with the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad, He'd done this using former contacts from his Civil War days. By 1892, when Nancy was 13, her father had re-established his wealth and built a sizeable home, eventually moving to an estate known as Mirador near Richmond, Virginia. Incidentally, her father was the maternal grandfather of Joyce Grenfell. Now, Nancy had four sisters and three brothers who survived childhood. All the sisters were known for their beauty, there were bells of the southern balls, which rather has the air of gone with the wind about it. Her sister Irene, the most beautiful sibling, married into high society and became known as the Gibson Girl, the epitome of American beauty. Her connections rescued Nancy from an unsatisfactory finishing school and introduced her into high society. Nancy met her first husband at a polo match, and while he was a rich, well-connected, handsome socialite, Robert Gould Shaw had a poor reputation. 
Many from both sides tried to dissuade her, but to no avail, and she married aged just 18 in 1897. Now, the relationship was on the rocks as early as the honeymoon when she left him after the first night. <laughs> she did return, but never settled, and returned home on several occasions. Not surprisingly, it came as a surprise to many that their marriage produced a son, Bobby. Now, Shaw's friends called her puritanical and frigid. Her friends called him an alcoholic womaniser. He certainly drank to excess, which reinforced her aversion to alcohol. She wanted a divorce, but had to settle for an official separation until it was revealed that her husband had married his mistress and was a bigamist. Now, his family then urged Nancy to get a divorce, presumably in the hope that Shaw wouldn't be convicted of a criminal offence. She agreed and received a handsome settlement. But the stigma of divorce in 1903 was to be a great handicap, more so, as it turned out, in the States than England. Nancy's family decided she needed a change of scene, so with a school friend and her son, they came to Europe. She was enamoured of England and, being barred from New York society because of her divorce, returned twice more. She was an accomplished horsewoman, so mixed with the landed gentry and the great and the good in London society. She was welcomed by branches of the Astors and the Vanderbilts and was even presented at court despite her status. Now, inevitably, she attracted numerous very eligible and persistent suitors. She was once asked by Lady Cunard, have you come to get our husbands? Her unexpected response, if you knew the trouble I had getting rid of mine. <laughs> now, her breezy American manner charmed her listeners and displayed the wit for which she became known. On her trip to England with her father for Christmas in 1905, also on board the SS Cedric was her future husband, Waldorf Astor. It's said he fell in love during the voyage and became determined to marry her. Now, he'd arrived in England when he was 12, when his father, William Waldorf Astor, the newspaper and property magnate, had moved the family to England and raised his children in the English aristocratic style. His father was at one stage regarded as the wealthiest man in the States and was the Astor who built the Waldorf Hotel in London. Now, Waldorf Astor himself had been educated at Eton and Oxford, so a very English background. As the eldest son, it must have been a great catch, so the odds of this being seen as an appropriate match must have been pretty long. Now, Astor faced competition for Nancy's affections, as her return had brought many proposals from her previous suitors. Astor, a quiet reserve man, pursued her with a determined courtship, ensuring as many meetings through social events as possible before popping the question. In many respects, they were opposites in temperament. She was forthright and apt to speak before thinking, which didn't always endear her. He was much quieter, but throughout was a thoughtful, wise and supportive partner. Five months after their first meeting, they married. Nancy was determined to marry in church, but it needed a dispensation. It was granted, but with the proviso that the wedding wasn't advertised, as there had been some clergy opposition. So they married without fuss, with only a few family members in attendance. They were exactly the same age, both born on the 19th of May, 1879. Now his father very graciously accepted her situation, and for the wedding gave her a famous diamond in a splendid tiara once gifted by Louis XIV to a mistress. And the couple also received Clifton as a wedding present from Aston Zena. <laughs> Now, the American and British papers were full of the match, as you can probably imagine. 
Now, all seemed set fair, but both suffered periodic bursts of ill health throughout their lives. Astor with his heart, which required frequent trips for the latest cure and periods of rest. Nancy, too, struggled with a variety of issues linked back to typhoid in her childhood. This weakened her immune system and brought on bouts of debilitating neuralgia. Now, if that caused a few interruptions to their plans, it didn't stop the large-scale renovations to the Berkshire estate. 120 workmen arrived whilst they stayed at the Ritz. Once completed, she started hosting society dinners, which inevitably featured the most important and well-connected. Kings, emperors, politicians, notable Americans <coughs> and family were all invited. The merely frivolous and purely fashionable weren't. But unlike many of the aristocracy, they welcomed a much more modern element. Amy Johnson, Charlie Chaplin, Henry Ford and long-term friend George Bernard Shaw were amongst the guest list. And on occasion, the king even popped over for tea. Now, nevertheless, it must have been a strain on those who worked at Clifton, as at this age, there were no time-saving devices. The plumbing left much to be desired, and it was years before central heating was installed. Nevertheless, the house parties round Royal Ascot were definitely one of the highlights of the London season. A first child appeared in 1907, and at the same time, Waldorf and Nancy turned their attention to what ways Waldorf could use his talents, wealth and connections. It was Nancy that suggested politics. Now, the Conservatives were keen to have him, though his social conscience meant he was a little too radical for many of the Tory faithful. He was offered the opportunity to stand in Plymouth in 1908. This despite the fact that he, like his wife, was opposed to alcohol and the local party chief was head of a distillery. Now, the seat was held by Liberals, but they bought a house there, and Nancy, despite another infant on the way, was very active in the constituency. They used their money in schemes to help the underprivileged in the area, and Nancy found an outlet for her social concerns and good works, which lasted all her life. The parties at Clifton, with the political luminaries, were now an essential part of their political plan. The election came in 1910 when David Lloyd George, having been defeated in the Lords over a contentious people's budget, went to the country. Disappointingly for the Astors, Waldorf came in third in a two-seat constituency, hampered, he felt, by poor party organisation and a dismal running partner. He was further hindered by a bout of consumption which took him away from the hustings, but significantly they reduced the Liberal majority. The whole process had taken a lot out of Waldorf, and so they decided to build a seaside retreat to help with the vicissitudes of their health. The result was a cottage near Sandwich called Rest Harrow. <laughs> it wasn't the average size cottage, as it had 15 bedrooms, numerous bathrooms, baths with four taps which produced fresh and seawater, and five different types of shower. Not quite Premier Inn, is that? Anyway, meanwhile, the new government were under the cosh with no outright majority, plus issues such as the Tony Pandy riots, the Home Rule issue, the suffragist campaigns, and a failed attempt to reduce the power of the Lords. It was all brought to a head when the King, Edward VII, died, and another election had to be held in December 1910. Now, the good work the Astors had put in at a previous election produced dividends, and Waldorf was elected with a turnout of 85%. It doesn't appear that constituency business was very arduous. He was probably more diligent than most, but he could go abroad for long spells for his health. But government business was in a state of disarray, and really long sittings meant that they bought a house in London. 
This, of course, led to even more entertaining opportunities. But one biography suggests that Waldorf's star, as it rose, Nancy became more and more resentful, not helped by a steady stream of children. Now, Nancy did appear to hate sex. She produced it as lustful and against Christ's teaching, but she allowed the occasional transgression to produce five offspring. She said once, Vice has no allurements for me. My greatest battle is with my tongue. It is far too sharp and inaccurate. Now, the outbreak of war saw them more active in Plymouth because of the naval bases, but Waldorf's attempts to join up were foiled because of his health. Five times he was rejected, but he did serve in the Quartermaster General's Department. They offered Clifton to the army, but it was rejected, but the Canadians did accept and built a hospital in the grounds. Nancy was in her element. She would visit daily, chat to the patients, invite entertainers, and organise the local ladies to bring books and flowers. It's estimated more than 24,000 casualties went through its doors, and Nancy was endeared to the Canadian public. Now, as the war progressed, many meetings were held at Clifton between leading Americans and the British as relations were ramped up prior to the US joining the war. But they received an unexpected blow in January 1916, when a newspaper man rang up Waldorf and asked him what he thought of his father being ennobled in the New Year's Honours. Astor Senior, for many years a naturalised Brit, had been very generous with his contributions to numerous charitable and political organisations. He was the owner of a couple of influential papers too, so this was his reward. Waldorf was shot, and the upshot was father and son had a major falling out as it effectively capped Waldorf's political ambitions. His father died 18 months later. Waldorf, now Viscount Astor, then tried to get an Act of Parliament passed to allow him to renounce the title and stay in the Commons. In need of a new candidate, they initially approached John, Waldorf's younger brother, but he was still recuperating from war injuries, so he turned it down. Nancy was mooted as a possibility. After all, she was an Astor with all that it brought with it, including the support of Waldorf. He saw it as a good way to keep the seat in the family while he was pursuing his law change. The Plymouth Brethren in the party weren't wholly convinced. Many saw it as a risky experiment. Some thought her too socialistically minded, but they did acknowledge her efforts in the city. Though we admit that nobody could have done more benevolent work than Lord and Lady Astor, we say that neither a kind heart nor a coronet fits a woman to take her place in Parliament. And from what we know of Lady Astor, she is more unfitted than most of her sex. One of Nancy's literary friends, or she, he was a friend at the time, echoed these sentiments. J.M. Barry of Peter Pan fame put forward his male view. What can you know about politics? These things require a man's brains, knowledge, fairness and eloquence. Women's true sphere in life is to be a health meet. Well, I bet that put an end to the party invites. <laughs> then, of course, her nationality was a disadvantage, and her style was the complete antithesis of serious conservative behaviour. To add to her many disadvantages was a lack of knowledge of the minutiae of many of the relevant political issues. Oh, and of course, she was a divorcee, not a popular position in straight-laced Devon. The hand was forced when Waldorf's bill was defeated by more than 100 votes. The party thought again, and as well as her constituency links, she did have a flair for public speaking, and the electoral changes had brought thousands of women voters into the reckoning. The invitation telegram came, but Nancy stewed over it for a few hours before accepting. 
After all, she had five children under 12, and the youngest was just 15 months old. Her entry into politics brought a flurry of messages of support from near and far, but many people and many papers were less enthusiastic. Her teetotal views were seen as a latent support of prohibition, though that stance lost some of its footing when it turned out both the Liberal and Labour candidates were also teetotalers. She hit the campaign trail with gusto and peppiness, as one American paper described it. Larger and larger crowds came to hear her, and as she went round in a carriage drawn by a couple of horses and silk-hatted coachmen, she certainly looked the part. Accompanying her as the warm-up act was another recently elected Tory MP who was to find fame and infamy in later years, Oswald Mosley. Now, Nancy addressed the issues of large unemployment in the city and faced off the Liberal candidate, Isaac Foote, father of Michael. Her Labour opponent tried to slay her with facts and figures, but while she admitted she was no economist, she countered with talk of ideals and practical knowledge of women and motherhood. At her side was Waldorf, and she was undoubtedly helped by the good work he'd set in train at the new Ministry of Health. She was a star on the hustings with her wit and repartee, which saw off the hecklers much to the delight of the crowds who came to hear her. If you want an MP who will be a repetition of the 600 other MPs, said Asta, don't vote for me. Whilst the Liberal and Labour candidates fought a campaign pointing out her negatives, she emphasised the positives, which coupled with her boundless energy, outmanoeuvred her rivals. She attracted support from the poorer elements of the constituency as she visited certain deprived districts where many men feared to tread. The by-election was held on a Saturday, but the result had to wait for two weeks until the overseas votes of the numerous servicemen were received. Nancy romped home with a majority of over 5,000. She stepped out on the Guildhall balcony, smiled, and the huge crowd erupted with cheering. Countess Markovich was less enthusiastic, saying she was one of the upper classes and out of touch, primarily as Astor had taken no part in the suffrage campaign. Nancy returned to London almost immediately, unannounced, but word had spread, and as she was met at Paddington by a crowd of suffragettes, including an unnamed woman who had been imprisoned and on hunger strike. This is the beginning of our era, she shouted. I'm glad to have suffered for this. On December the 1st, three days after the result, with the chamber and galleries jam-packed, she made her entrance shortly after three o'clock. Looking charming and wholly feminine in a dark suit, white satin brows, tricorn hat and white kid gloves, she cut a business-like air. This was, in effect, her parliamentary costume, designed to deflect the media obsession with her clothes. Called forward by the Speaker, she was flanked by the Prime Minister Lloyd George, and the Lord President of the Council and former Prime Minister, Arthur Balfour. One observer sensed a rather chilly air from some stodgy old politicians. Even some members she regarded as friends couldn't bring themselves to speak to her. It may have been a battle won, but the war was to rage for some time. Letters and telegrams flooded in, more than 600 letters on day two alone. Now this must have put huge pressure on her to stand up for her ideals, the future of women in the House largely depended on her performance, but she was determined to act in the causes that affected women and children. It was to be a delicate and difficult path, with many obstacles in her way. As she told American audiences later, ever since I entered the House, I ceased to be a person and become a symbol. Her first vote was against the introduction of premium bonds, as she opposed betting. 
but one of the first acts to see her in action was a bill which effectively allowed women into previously male-only domains. This included lawyers, counsellors, accountants, doctors, civil servants, including being able to sit on juries. Not surprisingly, many men in these professions were against it. British society had changed because of the war, but many men had returned to a country with fewer jobs, and many of the old prejudices remained. Her maiden speech was on a bill on the removal of wartime drinking restrictions. It had been introduced as a temporary measure to reduce drunkenness amongst workers making explosives. Nancy saw drink as a cause of much violence in the world and many of the hardships of women and children. Prohibition had, of course, been introduced in the States and her teetotal views were well known, so it was a risky opening gambit. I'm not pressing for prohibition, she said. I am far too intelligent for that. I know it was a very difficult for some honourable members to receive the first lady MP, but I assure you that it was as difficult for a woman to come in to address you now on this vexed question of drink. It takes a bit of courage to dare to do it, but I do dare. Her speech lasted half an hour, was deemed eloquent and thoughtful, and was well received, even if some thought the style was rather street-cornerish. Whatever else the Houses of Parliament were, or is still now, it couldn't be described as a palace of temperance. Her rather cavalier style in the House wasn't well received, as it didn't stick to the perceived rules. She repeatedly interrupted speeches, frequently resorted to giving a running commentary, and was given to show her displeasure by tapping an irritated toe. She fell out with Winston Churchill, once a frequent visit to Clifton, but as she sat behind him in the Commons, it gave her plenty of opportunity to annoy. It must have been like having an irritating wasp buzzing round your head. You may be familiar with one of their exchanges when she said to him, If you were my husband, I'd give you poison. No matter, said Churchill. If I was your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> Forgive the accent. He later admitted he'd tried to freeze her out. When her portrait was hung in a staircase in the Commons in 1924, it received a mixed reception and the canvas was even defaced. In general, many MPs simply ignored her, obstructed her passage to her seat, deliberately made life uncomfortable. It was effectively like being sent to Coventry, even by those on the same side. At times, she was encouraged to leave the chamber when certain unfeminine issues were being discussed. While she had a comfortable office in which to work, there were no ladies' toilets nearby. The papers accused her of being elected due to the Astor Largess in Plymouth. Her own divorce was dragged up when divorce reform was being discussed, though she did actually oppose divorce in principle. One cause she did champion was equal franchise for women. With fewer men around after the war, the first suffrage bill meant women voters would outnumber men. Leading Tories claimed the majority of women didn't want to vote. Such a change wasn't approved until 1928, by which time, of course, the younger generation of men had reached voting age. She recalled, When I stood up and asked questions affecting women and children and social and moral issues, I used to be shouted at for five or ten minutes at a time. Her mailbag would be full of hundreds of letters each week from women activists. She had four secretaries to cover parliamentary and domestic life. She sat on numerous committees and listened to as many women's organisations and their issues as possible. You're the experts briefing me, she said, rather like a lawyer taking her case. She invited their representatives to her London house to meet some MPs, and she even introduced the concept of name badges so everyone knew who they were speaking to. 
Now, Astor's political outlook owed much to her conversion to Christian science, which came after she'd struggled with a particularly nasty operation. She took up their cause, relying on its emphasis as prayer as a cure for all ills. Her grandson recalled how if you ever complained of being unwell, she would respond with an hour's Bible reading or the works of the founder Mary Baker Eddy and her famous book Science and Health. Just to give you an idea of her working day, it began with Bible study or a Christian science lesson. It was followed by a cold bath, a game of squash, she had a court built in their London house, and a few more exercise routines before going to the house. Her parliamentary work was extensive, committees, debates, meetings, and her post. In her wake was her family. Waldorf was doing political work in the Lords and was very supportive, but he had to play second fiddle. The children were all at boarding school except the youngest, and it would appear they only got brief glimpses of their mother. Incidentally, she was a very enthusiastic golfer and not averse to doing cartwheels around Clifton. <laughs> she still visited the US and after her election was besieged by reporters and requests for interviews. She met President Harding and was given a silly reception in her hometown. Her election was termed rather condescendingly to be the result of the halo effect, women taking over their husband's parliamentary seat, a process which accounted for the election of 10 women MPs, nearly a third of the women elected to parliament between the two world wars. It was two years before another woman joined her in the house, which meant her workload couldn't be shared. In February 1923, she came out of the draw for a private member's bill, named the Intoxicating Liquor Sale to Persons Under 18 Bill. It wasn't the first attempt to try and ban certain drink sales. They tried it 200 years before with the adage, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence, dead for three cents. Nancy said her bill was in response to a petition from more than 100,000 teachers and other associations. Her opponents thought she was leading the way for prohibition. In the end, the bill was watered down, but did become law and was known as Lady Astor's Bill. And of course, the age limit remains the same today. Although they were very rich, the depression and death duties following the death of William Astor even led to thoughts of closing Clifton. But that would, of course, meant their staff losing jobs, and they decided against it. While she fought and won seven elections in 1929, it was a close-run thing, with a majority of just 211. As matters in Europe grew more fraught in the 1930s, the Astors came under attack for a perceived support of Germany. She had openly criticised the Nazis over their treatment of women and was above all committed to peace. Like many Conservatives, the desire to avert war was paramount. But the Clifton set were seen as pro-Nazi and the Astors as leaders in the appeasement movement. This was prompted by their guest list at Clifton, which included many of very diverse views, including von Ribbentrop. Now, the prevailing feeling of many at that time was that the communists were the greater threat, but Waldorf had to resort to writing an open letter. Now, when Germany invaded Czechoslovakia, they came out against Germany and were amongst those who forced Chamberlain from office. It turned out that Nancy was on the Nazi blacklist for arrest had they invaded Britain. Now, the declaration of war saw them focus most of their attention on Plymouth. Waldorf became Lord Mayor, and they spent long periods in the city throughout the bombing, visiting shelters, arranging accommodation and canteens for the homeless, and appealing for and channeling donations from Canada and the US. Now, Clifton became a home for evacuees and once more as a hospital. The London house was bombed and Rest Harrow closed. 
Despite her wholehearted good works in Plymouth, including entertaining children with the famous cartwheel, she was still an active MP. But her appearances in the House brought more criticism. After a long career of being habitually outspoken, she'd festered resentments, and she didn't moderate her views in the light of the prevailing circumstances. As the war came to an end, Waldorf, amongst others, persuaded her not to stand in the 1945 election, saying the family wouldn't support her. In truth, neither would the local party. Her views were increasingly out of line, and they were trying to save her reputation, but she saw it as a betrayal and humiliation. She fell out with Waldorf and spent long periods in the States in the immediate post-war years, much to his distress. Because of the tax liabilities, 94 pence in the pound, Clifton had already been given to the National Trust in 1942, with the proviso that the family could still live there. Nancy undoubtedly felt at a loose end. When her son Jackie stood in her old seat in the 1951 election, her presence was strictly limited to one visit. The problem was they thought her appearing in his campaign could affect his candidacy. She controlled herself, entertained the assembled crowds, and no doubt felt it should have been her. In 1952, Waldorf, whose health never good had been deteriorating for years, died after a stroke. Now, many thought she would be offered a life peerage when they became available in 1958, but she was perhaps just too uncontrollable. The following year, she was rather belatedly awarded the freedom of the city. Nancy lived on until 1964, just shy of her 85th birthday, by which time Clifton had become the centre of more parties and unwanted notoriety. <laughs> on a visit to her daughter in Lincolnshire, she suffered a stroke from which she never recovered. At her memorial service, the former Bishop of Plymouth recalled how she had said that she hoped Plymouth would stay morally and physically clean. She didn't wish for any monuments. What she wanted were Lissabins. These were scattered around the city, inscribed, In memory of Lady Astor, keep the city clean. The portrait of her entry to the Commons ended up in the City Hall in her hometown of Danville. She was always an American at heart and was buried in the Octagon Temple at Cliveden, wrapped in a Confederate flag. Whatever her parliamentary reputation, she was always very quotable, and perhaps that is how she is best known, which is a shame given her endeavours in becoming the first sitting woman MP. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.